Thank you, Greg. Good morning. It's great to be here, sincerely. Um, I want to start by saying thank you. Uh, before, even before I introduce myself, uh, I want to give you a couple statistics that I think if you've been at Grace Point for five years in that window, you're going to, your heart is going to sing when you hear these statistics. Um, this coming, incoming kindergarten class coming into Peckway Valley, all but four of the incoming kindergartners, all but four, have connected with resources through the liaison, the staff member that used to be Katie. Some of you know Katie here. Uh, Grace Point stepped out in a bold, courageous way and said, we're going to partner with this community. We're going to make a difference. We're going we're to absorb the cost of a staff member, if need be, to serve this community. If those of you remember the history of that, um, where we are now, we've come now all the way through the cycle of all but four kids have connected with those resources. In the last two years, in the last two years, let me make sure I get this number right, 17% of children entering kindergarten, it has increased 17% ready to learn. 17%. Now, we're an organization that exists to punch poverty in the mouth, is how I like to say it, generational poverty specifically. And there's no greater way to... to derail generational poverty than education, getting a, a young person ready to learn. If you go home today and Google third grade reading scores and the connections to it, it is significant, the connection. If you finish third grade and you are behind in your reading score, there's a higher likelihood of incarceration, higher likelihood of high school dropout, higher likelihood of drug and alcohol use. I mean, it's just, it's staggering. Um, so I want to start by saying thank you to this church for taking a risk and stepping out and doing something that most churches do not do and would not do. I know Tim is not here today, else I'd thank him directly. I want to thank you and your leadership for supporting a pastor uh, and that you release him into the community. The impact that your leadership makes in this community is staggering. So I cannot thank you enough for the courageous um, steps in that direction. So that said, all I want to say about the factory, what I like to do when I come out to churches is not just talk about the factory. I wear the t-shirt so it can remind you I'm part of the factory. But my real heart here this morning is to encourage you in your love for Jesus, encourage you in your following of Jesus, and to really encourage us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's my heart. So to do that, um, to jump into that, I want to ask you a question. That song that was just sung, Lord, I need you. Are you desperate for God? If you had to answer that question right now, are you desperate for God? Another way to ask it is, do you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? Do you love Him and pine after Him and want Him? Are you desperate for God? What I really want to pay attention to, though, is not just so much the answer to that question, but what's happening inside of your mind right now as you think about how to answer that question. And let me go back a number of years to tell you how I would answer that question by telling you a story of what, how I used to coach football. Uh, I want to tell a story. When I would, the season would open up and we would get running, um, I would step in and tell this story. Now, I was told back when I started coaching, these devices weren't in everyone's pocket. So I was told this was a true story. Well, now that everyone can fact check this, I can't find this story anywhere online other than the people associated to Socrates thousands of years ago. So I'm like, okay, something he used to do with his disciples that would follow him. So, um, but I was told it was a true story, and I told it as I coached the true story. Now, I'm going to try, I, I'm not, I, especially those sitting up here in the front, I'm not going to, I'm going to try and get into my coaching, put my 
coaching hat on and tell it like I told it. Now, that would mean spit flying and all kinds of stuff, so um, I will do my best to temper it a little bit. But here's how I tell it. I look at the players that would gather around me, and I'd say, guys, I have a story for you. I can coach you in a lot of things, but there's one thing I cannot teach you. And if you learn this one thing, you will have a successful season and potentially make it to the NFL one day. That's how I'd open up. And I'd say, here's the story. Here's what I can't teach you. There's a story of a well-known basketball coach who would always, every year, he would set aside a handful of walk-on scholarships. He wouldn't give them all out to the, to the high school players that were incoming. Because of this, players would come to campus excited for their opportunity to show that coach what they had. One day, a young man walks into this coach's office to say to him, Coach, I'm trying out for your team. I want to play basketball for you. I came to this school to show you what I have. The coach sits back and looks, at, looks him over, ponders, rubs his chin, says, that's amazing. Follow me. The coach gets up and walks out of the office. Now, the office is, is, sits right off the gym. So he's walking in the gym. The player begins to get sweaty palms. It's getting anxious and excited because he's like, the coach wants to see what I have here on the floor. He wants to see me dribble. He wants to see me shoot. He wants to see what I have. But he's surprised when they walk all the way across the gym and never touch a basketball. They head out into the area where there was an indoor track and a running facility, and he's like, ah, I, I know. He wants to see my speed. He wants to see what I have with agility. He wants to see if I can jump and wants to work through those, that's, that, those skill sets that I have. But he's surprised once again as they walk through that space and started heading into another area where it looked like it was going to be the weight room. So he started thinking, oh, he wants to see how strong I am. That's where we're going to start. But they bypass that and open up these double doors, and as soon as the double doors open, the smell of chlorine hits you in the face. They're in the indoor pool. Now the coach walks right down into the pool. The player stops at the edge of the pool. I mean, clothes and all, just walks right in. The player stops here at the edge and is like, what? what? The coach turns around and looks at him and says, I said, follow me. Now, the player stands at the edge and looks down at his brand new, <laughs> brand new basketball shoes that he spent $200 for. I'm not walking in the pool. Is this guy? <sighs> so he takes a deep breath. I want to play for this coach. I want that scholarship. He takes a step, another step, begins to approach the coach. As soon as he gets from here, the coach grabs him in the back of the head and throws him underwater. Now, the player in his mind is thinking, this guy's odd. <laughs> I mean, what's he doing? 10 seconds becomes 20 seconds becomes 30 seconds. At this point, the player is thinking, this guy's going to kill me. What is he doing? 30 seconds becomes 40 seconds, and he's panicking. I'm going to die under here. He's trying to kill me. So he starts to pull and grab both hands in his hands, but he, he's trying to get leverage back under him so he can push himself up out of the pool, and he's, and he's fumbling and getting awkward, and he's starting to panic and, and going crazy, and the water's flailing, but all the time the coach is pushing harder on his head. In about a minute, the coach takes his hand off, and the player comes flying up out of the water and looks at him and says, you are insane. Coach says, I am. And when you hunger to play basketball, in the same way you hungered for that breath of air, 
come back and see me. Now, I would look at those football players, and I would say, guys, there's something I cannot teach you. I can coach you a lot, but I can't put desire in your heart. And desire goes a long way. Now, that's how I, as a youth pastor, when I first came to faith, I came to faith late in life, and I come to faith, and I, uh, and I step into youth and I, would, and I would preach and teach from stages like this, and I would get to my quiet time. And when people would ask me, do you desire God? Do you need him? I think of stories like that. I would preach a revival. I would try and think about loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I would dig deep and run hard, and I would think of passages like Revelation 3 where it's God says, if you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth, and I would preach messages centered on that theme. I had a fervor and a passion coursing through my veins, but there was one really big problem. I got tired, really tired, and I began to wear out. Now, those on the outside didn't see it. Those that were sitting in a room like this, as I was on a stage like this, didn't grasp it because my messages were still passionate and strong. But what I began to realize is when Jesus says, love Lord God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What I began to realize is, wow, Adam, you love God, but that second commandment, I'm not finding a sweetness in life and a love for the people that are close to me, growing. It actually seems to be going the opposite direction. People irritate me more now than ever. So when I think of the question now, I want to share with you my journey over, this isn't just, this wasn't just a one-moment journey. This wasn't just, a, oops, I made a mistake and I learned. This is a, this is a year after year after year journey. I want to share with you what I've learned and how to answer that question now, how I answer it differently now. When people say, are you desperate for God? When I sing songs, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. I answer it different now. I think of it different. And what I've learned to answer is just a simple, yes, I need you. Do you know why? Because I'm here. I'm human. That's it. That's all we need. I don't need to conjure up, dig deeper, preach of revival, run hard, run faster, do more, dig. Just recognize and connect with, I'm human. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Sorry, I don't have it up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, uh, maybe your phone, grab it, find it there on your, maybe your uh, version app. There's a, I know there's Bibles there in the seats in front of you. Luke chapter 18. We look at a story that I think captures this theme well of just what it means to be human. And because I'm human, I'm desperate. If I can put myself in connection with that, it's a powerful thing. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. It's important that when you, when you engage Jesus' teaching, it's important to look at the context and look at who he's talking to and why he's, he's telling stories. So, the, so he's telling this story to undercut 
this self-righteous attitude. So he's really going to go at this. I love how the message translation puts this. Let me read it to you this way, this first verse. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He told this next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves. I think it's a great definition for self-righteousness. Complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses on the common people. That's what Jesus is going to go after in this story. He's going to try and undercut that reality. So it starts out, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Again, let's pause here. I'm going to work through this. We work through this story. I want to pause this. We really feel this story. Two men, first a Pharisee. So that's like Greg. He's a pastor. Not that Greg's a Pharisee. I don't want to say that. His office, religious leader. He comes here this morning to lead us, to engage us in our relationship with God, to help us grow. It's like the good guy of society. And then he has a tax collector. This is the bad guy of society. Now, we've got to do a little work on this one because most of us, when we think of tax collector today, we think of, oh, I know a guy, my tax person, my CPA that I go to. What does my CPA do for me? He gets me more money. He helps me shelter things and move things around. Not shelter. That makes it sound illegal. <laughs> they help me honestly with integrity. Report my earnings in a way that bring more into me. That's what we think of when we think of tax people today. Now, we think of the IRS, we might put them in the same category of the first century tax collector. But what we have to do is translate tax collector, put it in your mind of if you think, if I ask you, who is the most no, what is the most notorious type of sinner that you could think of? That's what we're talking about here. So some of you might say, well, it's a pedophile, hands down. It's someone who abuses children. Boom, they're, they're, they, there is a special place in hell reserved for them. Might be what's happening in your mind. For some of you might say it's a human trafficker. It's someone who uses drugs and alcohol. It's a prostitute. It's a, you go, a liar, a gossiper, a greedy, um, whatever it is for you. That, that, that top sinner that you can imagine, that's what Jesus is contrasting. So we have the good guys and the bad guys. The religious leaders and a notorious sinner. Both of them are coming into a place like this on a Sunday morning. It would have been a Sabbath, but let's just put it in our context. Coming in on a Sunday morning to worship, to a church service. Okay, so that's how it's set up. Now the, now the next uh, verse, verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. <laughs> I picture God in heaven listening to this prayer. Oh, Jesus, 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 come over here, come over here, come over here. Look at this guy down here. Can you believe this? He gives a tenth of all that he has. Oh, Jesus, 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 look at this, look at this guy. Look how good he is. Holy Spirit, come over here, come over here. Look, 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 look. Who's he praying to? Why is he praying? Ask yourself, why is he praying this prayer? Who is this prayer for? Himself. Remember, Jesus is undercutting self-righteousness. He's, he's lifting himself up. He's making himself feel better. I mean, so when I think, of, I think of how many times, especially as a pastor, I prayed prayers for other people to listen and hear how good I was. 
Or how many times I've prayed prayers to impress God for who I, with who I am. This guy stands in his service with, a, uh, with an air of arrogance as he looks up to the heavens and says, God, I am such a good man. Now, contrast with the next guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, it's fascinating to me there's a contrast. The text doesn't tell us where the Pharisee's eyes were or what position his head was in. But as I've meditated in this passage a lot over the years, one of the things I've noticed is it does tell us where the tax collector's eyes were. Where are the tax collector's eyes? Where are they looking, if they're open at all? They're looking down. Now, if all of you would humor me for a minute in this room and look down, just bend your head and look down at the floor in front of you. With your eyes open, tell me who you can see. Move your eyes around all that you can. Try and look out your peripheral vision. Who can you see? Okay, you're going to look up now. Who'd you see? How many people did you see? You might have, might, if, if, if your peripheral is really strong, you might have seen two or three people over. But generally, you see the floor, the feet of the people around you. Oh, look at that. They painted their toenails. Oh, wow, look at that. That's what you were seeing. Now, put your head up. Do the same thing with your peripheral vision. Who do you see? Do you not see more people? There's a strong indication that when this Pharisee walks in, his head is up, and he is looking around. He can see around. Look at all those people. Versus the other guy's head is down. What's so fascinating to me, I'm reading a book right now, um, came across this, uh, it's by Susan Cain. She's an agnostic, openly says so in her book. Um, some of the most evangelical passages I've ever read, though, in her book. It's just fascinating. She writes the book Bittersweet. Um, she wrote the book Quiet, uh, looking at introversion and how our, how our nation has, is so extroverted and how in, in education we've hurt the introverts. And so she comes out with a second book, Bittersweet. She's talking about how to cultivate humility. Listen to what she says. We know from various studies that atti attitudes of superiority prevent us from reacting to others' sadness and even our own. So she profiles in the book these studies that they've done, how they've discovered that and learned that and have seen that in, in the lab. Then she says this, your vagus nerve, which your vagus nerve is the nerve, if it runs the central part of your body from your brain right on down through to your, in essence, your tailbone, and it connects, and it basically carries uh, between your brain all the signals of your organs, your digestive system, and et cetera. If you get into trauma research and start talking about being trauma-informed, you're going to learn a lot about the vagus nerve and the, and the detachment and, and all that can happen there. So she's talking about the central nerve in your body. So she says this, your vagus nerve won't fire when you see a child starving if you think you're better than other people. How then to achieve humility? One answer, ready for this? One answer is to practice the simple act of bowing down. This gesture actually activates the vagus nerve. Now, we don't know. So again, she's looking at it from a positive, proactive way. If you want to cultivate humility, a simple way to start is just put your body in a humble position. 
And what it does physiologically, it actually activates stuff for you physiologically. It's powerful. But I share that quote to say, here we have two individuals, one with a very superior mindset. And because of the superior mindset, his body is not firing to see the plight of others or even his own. The other is in a, is a very inferior position, a submissive position, and his body is firing to see the plight of others and his own. He's bowed. Now look at this prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner, as he beats his breast. Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. I've done something bad, let's say, and I deserve to go to jail. The judge will give me mercy by saying, you don't need to go to jail. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. If the judge gives me grace, the judge may say, oh, I'm going to reward you $10,000 in the process. That's grace. Mercy is saying, I'm going to give you what you actually deserve. So this man knows he's a sinner. But I find it interesting, I think all of us do, even the Pharisee, which is why he had to spend so much time <laughs> talking about all the good that he's done. So he says, have mercy on me. Now verse 14, Jesus wraps this up, and he says, I tell you this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home, look at this word, went home what? Went home, say it, justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This man, not the other, went home justified. This would have been a straight punch to the gut of the religious leaders, the self-righteous. Notice it doesn't say, this man repented. It doesn't say, this man changed. It doesn't say, this man made a commitment to God. It doesn't say, this man vowed like Zacchaeus to go home and give everything back to the poor. It doesn't say, this man went. It simply says, this man went home justified. Why? Because he acknowledged that he was a sinner. And he looked to God as the rightful person who could do something about it. Have mercy on me, O oh God. And because of that, he finds himself in a justified position before his creator. So when I open with the question, are you desperate for God? I want to add a second question to it that I think keeps us from being desperate, from just stopping and saying, yes! What gets in the way, I'd ask a second question. Are you desperate or are you different? See, the religious leader comes in and keeps his head up and looks all around and says, oh, they don't vote like me. They don't dress like me. Oh, my word, they don't even eat like me. They eat fructose corn syrup. Can you believe it? Oh. We have so much in our culture today that separates and distinguishes, and, and, and we begin to do these things. Our diets, our dress, our music, our, our choice of entertainment, our, the, the, who we marry, who we don't marry, what we do with our marriage, how, sexuality. We go down the list of all this stuff today that creates all these dividing lines. And we as humans have this strong propensity in social media. I'm not, I'm, I love social media. I'm not down on social media. But it has certainly aided in this problem. I can just simply scroll now and look at all the difference. Oh, my word. Can you believe? Honey, 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 look at this. Can, can you believe this? Look what she did. And in that moment, look what she did becomes, wow. 
I got it together. So I find one of the things that keeps me from being desperate is focusing on the difference. As opposed to me just stopping and saying, Adam, look at yourself. Be attuned to yourself. Be attuned to what's happening inside of you. Be attuned to your own brokenness, your humanity, and your sinfulness. And as you're attuned to yourself, it leaves you in a place of, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy. The sad thing is, <laughs> the sad thing is, is that many of us come to Christ because we are sinners. Right? That's why we come to Jesus. If I pass the mic around and say, well, you tell me your story about coming to Jesus. It's going to include something about, well, I had this moment where I realized I was a sinner and Jesus forgave me. That's what brings us to Jesus. What's so fascinating to me is why Adam Nagel came to Jesus because he's a sinner and then spent so much of his life trying to prove to the world that I'm not. And there's nothing like the stage of a Pharisee, a religious leader, to embed it deep in a soul. And that's where I found myself. A religious leader standing on a stage week in and week out. And the thing that was most interesting about my story is when you would ask people who were, who were listeners to my messages week in and week out, well, you would hear them say, Adam is one of the most vulnerable, open pastors I've ever heard. But you know what I was learning to do? I was learning to be vulnerable to protect myself. Because I learned that if I shared this far, you wouldn't ask any further. Oh my word, you hear Adam struggle with that. Wow, Adam. And it begins to actually elevate me in your minds because I'm vulnerable. And then you don't actually ask the tougher questions. Well, Adam, how's it going over here? So let me ask you. Again, that opening question. Are you desperate? Do you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the greatest way to answer, to test it if you do is do you have a growing love for people? The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 makes it the summation of the law because when I love God, the natural outgrowth, because what I'm... For he was forgiven much, loves much. When I love God, the natural outgrowth is love for people, a sweetness of life. Are you desperate? I've walked with a lot of pastors through the COVID season. My heart grieves for where the church is at. I've heard more pastors, local and abroad, through across our land, saying, never before have I wanted to quit like I have through this season. Our churches are more divided now than ever in my memory ever before. We politicized a thing called a mask and then separated over it. And now our churches are all divided. Now we've got all our right leaning over here and our left leaning over here. We've now posted and just stuff that I've seen breaks my heart. I don't stand in judgment of the churches. I stand grieving. 
I stand realizing I've contributed, I've been a part of the system. How my heart yearns and I dream of a church, which I think this church could be. I'm not here week in and week out enough to know, but a church, universal, larger church, that understands, yes, I come to Jesus because I'm a sinner, and I come back day in and day out because I'm still a sinner. And I understand the chasm that he's crossed to reach me. And yes, I'm going to grow and I'm going to mature, but I'm still a sinner to the core. Yes, I'm made new, but I'm still a sinner. This body of flesh is not free of the sin nature. And how I dream and envision and I think you can with me, some of you get this, say yes, of a church that follows the resurrected Jesus Christ who's conquered death, conquered sin, and then looks at us and says, follow me, follow me, and then makes their lives all about the very things that he taught, forgiveness, grace, mercy, not judgment, not returning evil for evil. Living in that sweet spot of saying, how do I represent the mercy that I've been given to the world that so desperately needs it? I love when Greg opened up, and this is where I'm going to go to prayer. Greg opened up, and uh, he said, he stood up here with his guitar, and he said something about, I don't know what you said, Greg, something about the world and, and the feeling of heaviness. Again, that is a beautiful thing to be in touch with. It is a heavy, broken world all around us, and it, we're not immune from it, and we hurt, and we ache, and we sin, and we make bad choices, and bad things happen to us, and what a sweet place to be able to come back into a place like this, beat my chest, and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Receive that grace. He has been forgiven much in turn, loves much, and step out following our resurrected Savior into this world where we say we are going to blow back the gates of hell, not by dividing, not by being different not by disunifying and going to this church because they that and that, but coming together unified around the beauty and the majesty of a resurrected Savior who's given to us grace and love. That's what I dream of. And then I'm going to pray and pray for us that we can do that well in this community, both at the factory, here at this church, and the churches that surround us. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the story that Jesus told, how convicting it is. God, I want to be in a place that's desperate, not conjuring up, not digging for, not, not working hard, but just in a place of being in touch with my brokenness, my humanity, the brokenness of all the world around me. God, I'm hungry for you, and I want to stay there. God, help me as a person not to, <laughs> not to spend time comparing, looking at the difference. Help me spend time looking at my own soul. God, I pray for grace. When I pray for Greg, I sincerely pray for Greg. Pray for Kevin. Pray for Tim. Pray for the elders that lead this church. COVID has been hard. I see it. I've heard it. God, your bride, 
your bride stumbled. God, thank you for leaders like you're here at Grace Point that have stood up and stayed strong and stayed engaged and continue to push in and not just draw inward, but continue to push out and say, how do we love our community? So God, would you strengthen this church? Would you embolden this church? Would you, each person that's here this morning, would you strengthen them in a, in a, in a rich, powerful way? God, my prayer is that this would be a group of people that, that is desperate because they know, they know the sin that lurks just in the shadows of their heart and mind. God, thank you for your mercy. God, the funny thing I pray for, I want to pray for those in this room that are uncertain of their eternal security, that are uncertain of their future, uncertain of the relationship with you, uncertain of whether you're for them or against them, uncertain of just that uncertainty. God, I pray right now that you would speak to them. You would quiet their heart. They would feel your presence. And God, they would be bold and brave and look at themselves and then look to you asking for mercy. And in those moments of acknowledging you, acknowledging Jesus, and acknowledging our brokenness, we, found, we find salvation. And we're justified and made right. And God, may we all lift our heads then and walk out of church and sing and dance. And go take to the world what we just found. God, I love you. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.